This is The Guardian. Today, he's been called Putin's attack dog. But who is Ramzan Kadyrov? And why has he been unleashed on Ukraine? In the early days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Chechnya's leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, posted videos of himself and his soldiers on social media getting ready for battle. He delivered a menacing warning. The Chechens, who had once ferociously fought and won a war against Russia, were joining Putin's brutal campaign against Ukraine. Bearded, squat-looking, and middle-aged, Kadyrov is a notorious warlord with a taste for bling and a reputation for barbarity. Yesterday, Russian negotiators met a Ukrainian delegation in Istanbul for peace talks. Peace talks between delegations from Ukraine and Russia are underway in Turkey, with the Ukrainian side pushing for a ceasefire. It's the first meeting between the sides in two weeks, they came away with a pledge to drastically reduce the military activity around Kyiv. But as the talks proceeded, Kadyrov was telling his subscribers on the social media app Telegram that the peace talks were pointless. He said, we must end what has been started. Reports this week have claimed that Kadyrov has been awarded the rank of Lieutenant General in the Russian army and that he has taken charge of the siege of Mariupol. After years of Russia's bitter conflict with its tiny Muslim republic, how did a Chechen leader develop such a close partnership with President Putin? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, an unlikely alliance, Vladimir Putin and Ramzan Kadyrov. Julia Strauss, you covered the Chechen wars in the 90s as a foreign correspondent, and you've been writing about the region ever since. So, first of all, who is Ramzan Kadyrov? So, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov is the leader of Chechnya, and he inherited the position from his father, who was a man called Ahmed Kadyrov. And Ahmed Kadyrov fought against the Russians in the First Chechen War, and uh, later he changed sides and joined the Russians. So how did he go from fighting for Chechen independence against Russia to becoming an ally? Well, I think what happened, you know, the 1994-1996 the Chechen war was a disaster for the Russians. They piled a whole load of, you know, heavy equipment into Grozny and I think the Chechen capital and basically got taken apart. In spite of Boris Yeltsin's ultimatum, the Chechens have not disarmed and instead are trying to shoot down the Russian jets that appear over Grozny. 
and they did lose that war. The, the, the Chechens, you know, who only had come to a million people all in, won that war and forced them out. Though Moscow denies it, there is little doubt that these are Russian Air Force bombers. And today they carried out yet another attack on Grozny Airport. But what happened next was that, unfortunately, Chechnya really began to fall apart after the Russians had withdrawn. And a lot of the Islamic fighters and the different Chechen factions fought amongst themselves. Things became incredibly difficult and brutal in Chechnya. So by the time Putin came on the scene in sort of late 1999 and began to plot to take back Chechnya, he found Kadyrov as a willing sort of ally in that. There would have been complicated motivations there. And on the one side, Kadyrov must have thought to himself, you know, anything is better than the mess we're in right now. And secondly, obviously, there was an attraction of power. And so he changed sides. And he became, for the Chechens, for most Chechens, he became a turncoat. Western leaders will be told to keep their noses out of what Moscow considers its own business. And that they shouldn't worry, because Moscow will say... They're only targeting rebel strongholds, not civilians. Yet this ward is full of the latest casualties from Chechnya. Among them is 20. From Putin's point of view, it was something of a masterstroke because it meant that from there on in, a lot of the casualties in Chechnya were Chechen on Chechen. And that for Putin politically was a was a good thing. It meant that he didn't have to, you know, live with all the casualties that had been coming out of Chechnya, the Russian casualties. Well, as a correspondent, you met Ahmed Kadyrov. What was he like? He was gruff. He was dangerous looking. I was in Chechnya, which, and at that time, Western journalists were not supposed to be in Chechnya. You had to have a special permission, which they never really gave you. And I remember talking to my, the guy who was helping me translate and so on and so on. And I said, I want to go and see Kadyrov. I want to just drive up to his house, knock on his door and see if he'll talk to me. The guy I was working with, who was a very brave man, he was extremely scared. And he said, you know, this is this is not a clever thing to do. He's a, he's a man of violence. If you say the wrong thing, things can go badly wrong. But we did it anyway. We I went in, I went in on my own. I interviewed him in Russian. My Russian at the time was so-so, so I recorded the interview. I didn't understand everything he said, to be honest, but I did have a recording of the interview. He was a little bit suspicious, but um, otherwise we sat around his kitchen table, as I remember it, and we just had a sort of a, a normal 20, 30-minute interview about what was going on in Chechnya. And it was a few weeks after you met him, he died. What happened and what did it mean for his son Ramzan? Ahmed was killed. He was at a stadium and he was blown up by a bomb, presumably put there by the separatists, although that was never quite proven. Ramzan Kadyrov flew to Moscow and he met Putin in front of the cameras. And they had this very sort of emotional moment where Ramzan Kadyrov was obviously very distraught. He was in a sort of a tracksuit and he turned to Putin and it really was almost like a sort of a surrogate father-son moment. Afterwards, there was, a, there was a bit of a glitch because the rules as to who could succeed stipulated that the successor had to be 30 years old or older, and uh, Ramzan Kadyrov was not. He was 27.
So for three years, Ramzan is waiting officially to take power, although it's clear Putin has chosen him as a successor. Then in 2007, he became head of the Chechen Republic. What's he like as a leader? He's, he's lots of different things. He's, uh, you know, he's the leader now of a very flash, very glitzy city, Grozny. There's been a huge amount of money pumped into Chechnya by, by the Kremlin, by the Russian leadership. He's also the most Stalinist leader in modern Russia. He's extremely uncompromising and, and cruel with those uh, that oppose him. He's been linked to several murders in Russia, although there's never been any proof to show that he was involved. Uh, he was linked to the murder of Anna Politkovskaya, the journalist. The fearless Russian journalist was gunned down in her apartment building in 2006. Politkovskaya was a staunch critic of the Kremlin. Murdered on Vladimir Putin's birthday, the Russian leader condemned her assassination, but said she had little significance on Russian politics. And uh, later Boris Nemtsov, the opposition leader. Russian opposition leader Boris Nemtsov was murdered late Friday night, just meters from the Kremlin. Nemtsov was walking with a friend who had just returned from Ukraine towards Bolotnaya Square. A car stopped and he was shot four times in the back from it. The journalist who was killed, Anna Politkovskaya, she had written that Ramzan Kadyrov was Putin's dragon. What do you think she meant by that? I think what she meant is that Putin could use Kadyrov to do dirty work that he didn't want to be associated with. Do we know that Putin, for example, gave the order to Kadyrov to kill Boris Nemtsov, the opposition leader in Russia? No, of course we don't. And he may well not have done. But it does suit the Russian leader to keep himself away from the sort of scene of some of the more egregious crimes that happen in Russia and to say, I have nothing to do with this. So I think that's probably what she was referring to. What do people generally make of him as a leader? It depends who you talk to. I mean, you know, Chechens come from a very, very difficult place. During the Second World War, Stalin rounded up and deported every single Chechen to Central Asia. And a good proportion of them, upwards of 25% of them died during transport or in the subsequent years. And it wasn't for more than a decade. It was under Khrushchev sometime that the Chechens were finally allowed to return. So they came back, they returned to their homeland, then they had that very, very difficult period between 94 and 96 during the first Chechen war, followed by the se second Chechen war, which was absolutely brutal. So there must be some people sitting there saying, you know what, we don't like Kadyrov very much. This is not our ideal way of living, but it's better than what we had before. On the other side, if you step out of line in any way, if you are some kind of liberal or homosexual or somebody who stands up against the regime or somebody who investigates human rights or that sort of thing, you are liable to be beaten, arrested or killed. All those who defend human rights groups and the gays we supposedly have in the Chechen Republic are foreign agents. They've sold out their country, their people, their religion, everything. And so the place does live in terror of Kadyrov. What is the relationship between Ramzan Kadyrov and Vladimir Putin based on? Gosh, I mean, one of the things we think about Russia 
you know, those of us who haven't spent much time there is that it's sort of mono-ethnic and mono-religious and so on and so on. And it's just not. It's, I mean, there are up to 4 million Muslims living in Moscow and up to 20 million Muslims in Russia. And there's a long-standing, complicated relationship between the Kremlin and, you know, its Muslim subjects. So that is part of the picture. That's part of what defines Putin and but there's also something else there. It's far more personal. It's far more emotive. I mean, my guess is that what happened after Ahmed Kadyrov died is that Ramzan Kadyrov offered his, you know, offered his full loyalty and fealty to Putin, and Putin took that as it was offered, and that created some kind of bond between them. And he does seem to worship Putin as a hero. It seems Kadyrov is absolutely obsessed with him. Just look at him wearing this T-shirt with Putin's face on it. And then look at him in this other Putin T-shirt, and then this other Putin T-shirt, and then in this but Putin But are there mutual political benefits to this relationship? What does Putin get from it? I think Putin benefits because he gets to impose a harsh but stable rule on a very restive uh, part of Russia that's very difficult to control. In other words, Chechnya. So he has, you know, the Chechen problem has been solved, if you like, for Putin. He also gets to, to show that you don't have to be a Russian and a Christian in order to win my favor, providing you do what I want you to do. What does Ramzan get out of it? He gets huge amounts of kudos within, within Russia itself, huge amounts of money for reconstruction. He gets to run Chechnya pretty much the way he wants to. And, you know, one of the ironies is that Chechnya today is in some ways as Islamic as it would have been had the Chechen rebels stayed in power during the 1990s. Right. So, you know, Ramzan Kadyrov has really taken it away from the mainstream and, toward, and created his own Stalinist Islamic state is probably not, a, not too strong a way to put it. So is it just the loyalty that explains why Kadyrov has now sent his Chechen militia into Ukraine? There's a couple of things. It's to show that loyalty. So it's not good enough just to be loyal, but you have to sort of overtly show it. So... I think that's one reason. And the other thing is, you know, Kadyrov starts himself a fighter. And I guess you can't really be a fighter without fighting. So the Chechens were fairly active in 2014. This morning, more unidentified pro-Russia armed militias controlling the streets of Crimea's capital. These troops are standing guard just a few hundred feet away from a Ukrainian naval base. They, have they won a brutal reputation for themselves down in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk during the 2014 campaign. And there's a new big war going on. And the idea of them standing aside and not doing anything was not something that was likely to happen, especially given Putin's need now for extra forces. Why does Putin want the Chechen fighters there? For their pluses, basically. They're good fighters. There are thousands of them. Their reputation is that they're tough guys and they're, they're battle-hardened and they're well-trained. 
I'm not sure about that. I mean, let's not forget that the, you know, the Chechen wars were a long time ago now. So more than 20 years ago. And so the generation that fought in those wars, those Chechens, I think are not probably in the field today or very, very few of them. The new Kadyrov guys, the sort of tough guys, how much experience do they actually have fighting? Well, they would have had some from 2014 in eastern Ukraine. Um, they'll certainly have had some experience sort of, you know, knocking the opposition at home in Chechnya. Does that make them good infantry fighters? I don't know. It's part of their culture. But these guys, mm. I'm not convinced that they have a lot of uh, battlefield experience. So you've got a combination of things. You know, Putin is short of men. So this is a this is a plus, definitely. Uh, they have a fearsome reputation that may help to demoralize the enemy. And it's also a way of showing that, you know, there are people that support me. I still have people in my corner. How much impact do you think their presence in Ukraine will have? It's going to be a mixed bag. A lot of the Russians, when I was, uh, you know, when I was in Chechnya, a lot of the Russians did not like the uh, Kadyrov's Chechens. They didn't trust them. And there were a couple of reasons they didn't like them. One was because they didn't trust them after the war in the 1990s. They thought that they were liable to, to change sides or to sell out the Russians. But the other thing is far simpler, and it's to do with money. You know, there are certain streams of money that go into a place like Chechnya or an institution like the Russian army. And... There are all kinds of people vying for those pots of money. And Kadyrov has very strong influence. He's a big guy, you know, in the makeup of the Russian world. And therefore, he can command serious funds. And if Kadyrov's getting the money, then somebody else is not getting the money, whether it's a Russian general or whether it's the FSB or somebody else. And that creates a huge amount of friction on the ground. And of course, the ethnic issue plays into it. You know, the Chechens are Muslims. So my experience with the Russian soldiers that I spent time with was that they didn't like the Chechens, even though they were nominally their allies. How worried do you think Ukrainians themselves should be about the presence of Kadyrov and his militia in the country? I asked this of a Ukrainian friend of mine who I was speaking to a couple of days ago. She's still in Odessa. And I said, I said this exact question to her. I said, do you think that the fact that Kadyrov is on the edge of Kiev will scare people and uh, scare Ukrainians? And she said, well, you know, it might scare Ukrainians a little bit. But the war has started now. People are ready. People are fighting. People are engaged. They're already facing overwhelming firepower from the Russians. Is one guy with a reputation for cruelty marching down the high street going to change that much? She said, mm. no, not really. It's, you know, it's a little bit of a psychological factor, but, but, but not a major one. So, you know, Kadyrov seems to behave, have behaved in a way that he thought that his arrival would scare the hell out of the Ukrainians. Superficial evidence suggests that probably not so much. Coming up, what does the future hold for the Putin-Kadyrov alliance? Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Julius, 
There's a sense that this war is not going to plan for Putin. Do you think that Kadyrov's presence reflects Russia's weakness rather than a genuine upping of the ante? I don't think sending Kadyrov in is a show of weakness. I think even if Putin was winning this war clearly, easily, then Kadyrov may well have gone in. After all, they went in in 2014 when the Russians were not facing very much opposition. I think what is a sign of weakness, though, is uh, the talk of 16,000 Syrians going in and them hiring Syrian mercenaries to fight in Ukraine. It's difficult to imagine that those Syrians are going to be very good on a ground that they know absolutely nothing about. And you know, I suppose there's a there's a little bit of a plus for Putin that he can say, well, us Russians are not the only ones involved in this side. There are others who believe in us. But there's also a negative, I think, in, in, in sending in, you know, Assad's men to bolster the Russian army. You spoke about how Putin dealt with Chechnya after the war in the 90s, where he installed a Chechen who was personally loyal to him and then empowered him to rebuild its cities and rule without any real elections. Is that the blueprint for what you think Putin is planning now for Ukraine? Maybe, but there are huge differences. And, you know, one is that Chechnya is 1 million people. Ukraine is 45 million people. Chechnya is a small, restive, you know, mountainous republic. Ukraine is a sort of a large country right, you know, on the edge of Europe. So I think Putin's original idea in Ukraine, well, we kind of know that his original idea was to send in, you know, fast, effective troops, special forces heavy, get into the capital, take out Zelensky and put in somebody who's pliable. I've never really bought the notion that Putin has every chess move mapped out eight moves in advance. I think he's more of an improviser than that. So what exact compromise he was willing to take on that? Did it have to be somebody who was completely his or somebody who was simply beholden to him, but not entirely? We don't really know the answer to that. But certainly Putin was looking to win control over Ukraine, to be able to have a very, very strong influence on what happened there and certainly stop it moving westwards. And in that sense, I suppose that... Uh, you know, Kadyrov has done in, in Chechnya what Putin, Putin wanted to happen in Ukraine. From everything you've said, Kadyrov has quite obviously ruled Chechnya with an iron fist. But could his actions in this war expose a weakness he's never yet shown? Could it damage that hard-worn reputation that him and his forces have just built over the last 20 years? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I suppose we've seen some very, very big numbers of, of Russian casualties from this war so far. We don't know for a fact, but, you know, the estimates are running anywhere up to about 20,000 killed and injured and uh, captured. Now, if that's the case, then many of them will have been Chechens. Is there a point at which Kadyrov thinks, oh dear, I'm losing too many men here? Is it really going to compromise his position at home? I doubt it. He's built such a Stalinist edifice there. He seems to be in such control of Chechnya. He seems to have control of all the sort of financial flows and everything that goes into Chechnya. I don't think the loss of men is going to threaten his position at home. Now, if Putin goes down, then will Kadyrov go down with him? That's a, that's a far more complicated question. And of course, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of beyond, the, beyond our abilities to speculate about. We're, we just don't know what's happening in the Kremlin at the moment. Julius, the grand bargain between Putin and the Kadyrovs essentially solved the Chechen problem that he had for 20 years. But if this war pans out badly for Russia, as it appears it might, 
could that reopen those old divisions and could Chechen separatism once again be a major issue for Russia? As long as Putin is empowering Russia, I think the putin of axis is probably fairly stable, although, you know, famous last words could be proven completely wrong. But if Putin goes, it's all going to depend. What will happen inevitably is that, you know, leaders of fiefdoms from all over Russia, not just Chechnya, are going to be beating a path to the Kremlin door to find out what happens next. Are they still in favor? Who can they cut a deal with? And so on and so on. Kadyrov is in a strong position, I think. I would be, if I was to put my head, you know, put myself inside the head of any new Russian leader, would the first thing you want to do be pick a fight with Kadyrov, given his levels of infiltration, given his levels of money, given his armed guys? Probably not. You're going to have much, much bigger concerns and bigger priorities. So based on that logic alone, I think Kadyrov is fairly safe. Could he be taken down by an assassin's bullet? Perhaps. Um, that's, you know, one of the great unknowns always. Uh, I mean, we don't know how vulnerable Putin is, and we certainly don't know, know how vulnerable Kadyrov is. But I don't think he's going to be particularly worried about his future at this point. Julius Strauss, thank you so much. My pleasure. My thanks to Julia Strauss. You can see all our coverage of the conflict in Ukraine at theguardian.com. And just before we go, I would like to mention that the application process for the Guardian Scott Trust Bursary Awards is still open for a final few days. It is an incredible scheme. It's designed to help students who come from backgrounds that are underrepresented in the media and who have financial difficulty in getting the qualifications they need to pursue a career in journalism. Applications close on the 3rd of April, 2022. Many of those who have received these awards in the past have gone on to get experience working with us on Today in Focus, so please do consider applying or telling anyone who might be interested in the scheme. Find out more at theguardianfoundation.org or follow the link from our podcast page. That's it for today. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Cassin. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Michael Rao. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.